All right. Open your Bibles, if you would. Book of Psalms. Psalm 16, verse 9. As you've already observed, this is the first Sunday of Advent, and I can assure you I will say Lent multiple times. There'll be one time I'll mean it. The rest of the time, just plug in the word Advent. I just I get it mixed up. I'm sorry. It's written down, and I'm still going to get it wrong. So this is the first Sunday of Advent. Got it right twice in a row. Okay. And um, this is the four-week period in the church that we share of, of preparation, of worship, of meditation, um, repentance, fasting for some people, all getting our, our, our hearts and our minds lined up with the anticipation, the celebration of the birth of our Savior. And this is, of course, the first Sunday we focus on the subject of hope. And so uh, the verse we're just going to start with, just going get, to get into it, is here in, again, Psalm 16, verse 9. And I'll be reading from the New King James Version this morning. It reads this way. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices, my flesh also will rest in hope. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. Father, we thank you for so many good things we've heard this morning. Father, even in the prayer requests that we bring before you, we know there is hope in that. We have a reason that we bring our prayer requests to you. Even our, in our trials and difficulties, we have a confidence in the goodness of our God. And in the great uh, testimony we have heard, Father, about the great things being done uh, through mercy ships. Father, we know a, a myriad of other ways your church is moving forward in the world. And we are so blessed to be part of it. Father, we know that this thing we call your church had a starting point. A babe more than a manger, Lord. And that's our focus this morning, in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, Advent is one of those things in the church that we, we kind of do and so, without necessarily always knowing why. You know, how did this get started? Or, or maybe you do ask that question. Why are we doing Why are the candles and the wreath thing? What's going on? Um, I'd like to begin by talking just briefly about that, why it is we put the time and the effort. Why four Sundays? What, what's the story there? So I want to begin talking about that. And then talk about this word hope, uh, just like the word advent, that we sometimes use it without really knowing exactly what it means. Uh, even a word like hope we can use and still not be exactly clear what it is we're talking about. You know? So we'll talk about that a little bit, and then we'll, um, we'll finally focus on, on how that connects to Christmas and to our celebration of Christmas, and then hopefully our, our everyday life. So uh, it really all comes down, what we're talking about this morning is a matter of perspective, getting the right perspective, not just on the holidays, but on life itself, and what this word hope means to that perspective. So first, let's talk about why we have Advent and how that becomes significant and why hope is a part of it. Uh, why four Sundays? Why the wreath? Why the candles? Uh, if you were raised like I was in a liturgical church, why all the different colors? Why? What's that all about? So let's, let's just talk about that a little bit. Um, why do we do it? Well, it, we, it was started. It was started late in the fourth century um, in France. And most historians that, that trace the development of Advent um, trace it to an effort to respond to a particular 
heretical thought, errant thought, that was very persistent in the church. And the fact of the matter is it's still out there today. You'll, you'll still hear variations of this particular error today. If you recall, when we were going through um, the Apostles' Creed, we talked about that early period in the church history when the church had more questions than anything. You know, they didn't have scripture they had the Old Testament, they had the apostles' teaching, and they were trying to sort things out. And the really big question was exactly who is Jesus? And how does the, Jesus and the Father, how does that work? And Jesus claims for deity. How do, you, how do you figure those things out? And so a lot of discussion was going on in those first several centuries. And as they came up with answers, it shouldn't surprise us, a lot of folks came up with wrong answers. And one of the wrong answers that came up again and again and again, and even comes up today, uh, it grew out of a particular form of philosophy that was very popular in that day called Gnosticism that was based in a real strong sense of dualism, that there is flesh and there is spirit, and one is bad and one is good. And that was absolute. And in, in its extreme forms, it led to heretical form of teaching. Now, if you think about flesh bad, spirit good, I mean, there are verses in the Bible that, that seem to say that, right? There are verses of Scripture, you know, like Romans, for the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. So that kind of goes along with that flesh bad, spirit good, and that real strong dichotomy. Well, of course, the biblical view isn't quite so absolute. You cannot simply say that, you know, flesh is bad because well, God made it for one thing. And you can't say, well, spirit is good because Satan is a spirit. He's not good, right? So it's not just a simple, hard, fast distinction between the two. And in fact, Scripture does make it clear that flesh is not inherently bad. In fact, we know that Jesus himself came in the flesh. And so responding to this heretical teaching that kept coming up and kept coming up that tried to distinguish between who Jesus was and a body of flesh. And For example, they would say things like, well, the Jesus that the apostles saw wasn't really there. He, was, he only appeared to be there. He was a spirit that would appear like an angel can appear. But he wasn't really flesh because flesh is, is bad, so he couldn't be flesh. That's how it worked. And the church needed to respond to that. And we, we see the response happening even in Scripture. Some of the later portions of Scripture, uh, like 1 John chapter 4, verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Right? Necessary to know that. Or 2 John 1, 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge that Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. That, deceive, that is the deceiver and the antichrist. So Advent started as a means of helping the church body, universal, everybody, focus on this idea that yes, indeed, Jesus was born and came in the flesh. He is, was and is, God in human flesh. Advent was there to help us remember that. And the churches continue to practice Advent. Um, if for no other reason, then that heresy hasn't gone away. You'll, you'll still run into it. And besides that, it's just a really important thing to remember that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. If for no other reason, then Easter draws its meaning. The resurrection draws its meaning only in the physical resurrection. And to have a physical resurrection, he had to have a physical body. So it's a really important statement that we make 
when we celebrate Advent. There's another really big benefit to Advent. This is one you might not think of too often. Advent has a marvelous unifying effect in the body of Christ. We talk a lot about the divisions in the body of Christ and different you know, ways we do things and see things. Isn't it interesting that a celebration that begins in France in the 4th century is almost immediately embraced by the entire Christian church? And although the Christian church has different ways of doing it, we still all do it. So, for example, much of what we see here in terms of the four, the four candles, again, grew out of Roman Catholicism. But the wreath, the wreath comes from Lutheranism, right? And the Orthodox, while they don't necessarily, you know, take credit for either one of those, they embrace Advent in an even larger way. They celebrate it for six weeks. Of course, they do a lot of fasting during their six weeks, so I particularly not, you know, I'm not inclined that way, right? But it is a time for repentant consideration of our sins as a remembrance of why it was necessary for Jesus to come in the flesh. And so even though the church universal, we talked about that, we talked about, you know, about the whole Apostles' Creed, the church universal, even though the church universal may differ in the way that we all do it, there's this universal celebration of the anticipation of Christ's birth. And there's another really good benefit, and that's simply a really good tool for teaching our children. I hope you have an Advent, especially if you have kids. Even if you don't, though, you should have it, an Advent calendar in your house. Uh, we've always had one. We did it for the kids before they left, and after they left, we kept doing it, because it's fun. Right? Especially the kinds you open it up, and there's a little box of piece of candy in there. Those are always the popular ones. But the point is, there's usually a scripture verse in there, too. And five minutes of discussion around the, Christ, the, Christ, the breakfast table, five minutes of discussion around the breakfast table about those verses or those parts of the, of, of the birth narrative can provide a wonderful tool for reminding ourselves and teaching our children about the importance of a day celebrating the birth of birth. So there's a lot to be said about Advent. We'll talk more about that in the next couple of weeks. But now to our subject of the morning, that of hope, hope. Right? Hope is another one of those words like Advent that we might use, but not really you know, think about what it means, right? We kind of associate hope with faith. We know those words have kind of, kind of connected, but they're not the same. Faith and hope are not the same. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, you know, now abide these three, faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. Now, we know that love isn't the same as faith or hope, right? So by that same rationale, faith and hope must not be the same. There's a distinction there. Um, in our English use, modern English use of the word hope, it kind of borders on wish. Like, you know, Christmas morning, I'm wishing for a new shotgun. I'll probably get a new shirt, right? But I'm wishing you know, for a new shotgun, right? Um, try this on for size. It, this is a, a little exercise I won't ask anybody to share. But try this. I'm going to read four statements. Same statement, just change a couple words. And just kind of monitor your feelings. You know, think as if you're saying this, as I say it, you say it in your mind, and think about what it means for you to say this. Um, I know I am saved. Say that to yourself in your mind. I know I am saved. If it's not true, talk to me afterwards. I believe I am saved. I have faith I am saved. I hope I'm saved. A little different, isn't it? 
It's almost like a gradation of confidence, you know. Starts with, I know I'm saved. And you can say that. You can say that. Paul wrote, I know whom I have believed and I'm persuaded he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. John wrote in 1 John 5, 13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. That's 100% sure. And it kind of goes down from there, but by the time we get down to I hope I'm saved, there's not much, not much confidence there. In fact, the word that is translated hope in most of our Bibles is elpida. If you go all the way back to the earliest use of that word, that's kind of where the word started, right? It starts as really nothing more than an expectation that something is going to happen. The mere concept that something is, is going to happen. And with that, the assurance that the future is going to happen. Maybe you never thought about this, but our ability to grasp the idea of the future doesn't have to be there. That's a gift from God. Our ability to contemplate the future, to exist in anything other than just the moment, is a gift from God. So when the word hope first began, or it'll be, it was, it's, it's used in, in the language of the, of the text, the word is first used, it's simply an expression that I can contemplate the future. So it could be said, to bring it an example from our own experience, I could say, I hope this winter's better than the last one. Right? I think most of us would agree with that affirmation. But I could equally say, I hope it's 10 times worse. And that wouldn't be a ridiculous statement. That wouldn't be like, what's wrong with you? You need to go away. No, I'm just, when I say that, I hope it's not 10 times worse. I'm just saying that my gut feeling is it might be. See, there was no valuation put to it. It was merely the possibility of thinking about the future. Well, as time passed, the word in its usage began to narrow to the more positive side of the equation. We stopped talking about winters that were 10 times worse, at least not in a positive way. And then we get to the Septuagint, that Hebrew translation of the Old Testament, I mean the Greek translation from Hebrew into Greek, and when the, scholars in, when the Hebrew scholars used the word to express thoughts about God, the word narrowed absolutely to a positive expression. So that the people of God, when they thought about the future, they thought about it in positive ways simply because they were the people of a God who was all-powerful and cared for them. So when you attach the idea of an all-loving, all-powerful God, which, is, which at, at that point in human history was completely unique to the, to the people of Israel, nobody else had an all-powerful God who loved them and cared for them. When you attach that idea to the possibility of future of what my expectation will be. Suddenly that word became a very positive thing. And that is where our biblical concept of hope comes from. So we have Psalm 16.9. Therefore my heart is glad, my glory rejoices, my flesh will also rest in hope. Now that doesn't mean I know what's going to happen tomorrow. It only means I know what will happen ultimately that ultimately, because my God is all-powerful and my God is all-good and he loves me and cares for me, that the end of my story will be good. Tomorrow may be rough. 
Tomorrow may be 10 feet of snow. It may be rougher than that. My today may be rougher than that. I may face insurmountable challenges in my today, but I know that the end of the story is ultimately good. I can rejoice now when I lay my head down. I can rejoice now because even when I die, I will be okay. And the difference wasn't as a God who's absolutely in control of human destiny and cares deeply about his people. Interestingly, though, when we come to the New Testament and the word sharpens even more, there's a pause. There's a part of the New Testament where hope is almost never talked about. It's the Gospels. Search the Gospels. You will hardly ever find the word hope. And the only time it's used, it's used in kind of this general theoretical way. Why wouldn't they talk about hope in the Gospels? Well, because hope is focused on the future. And they had the future with them. They had every expectation, every desire, every hope for the future in their immediate presence in the person of Christ. And so when they tried to talk about the future, they said, Rabbi, are you going to restore the kingdom? He said, it's not for you to worry about that. He said, take no thought for tomorrow. Now, the only way this makes any sense for Jesus to say, take no thought for tomorrow, the troubles of today are sufficient, is if he was telling them their thoughts needed to be in their immediate presence and exclusively in their immediate presence, and that's only true because he was there. Quite literally, the future was there in the presence of Christ. The whole of the Old Testament anticipates Christ coming. He's come. He's there. They don't need to talk about the future. It's not until he leaves and returns to the Father that the discussion reasonably again returns to the future. And now, in the epistles, when they talk about the future, the focus is singular, his return. For that is the future expectation of the church. You know, one way, example, of where hope is used in this sense is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Peter writes this, Therefore prepare your minds for action. Be sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let your immediate action, your conduct in the presence, be characterized by sobriety, a readiness for action because of what's coming in the future. The anticipation of Christ's return in the future is predicated completely, or either our actions today are to be completely predicated on the hope of his return. Now, Peter said something just before that, verses 10, 11, and 12, which I think we all know, you've all heard, but frankly, I've always struggled with figuring out what they really were all about. It reads this way. Now, as to this salvation, Peter's talking about salvation. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they're not serving themselves or they were not serving themselves, but you. In these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to, to, try, to you by the Holy Spirit spent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. So he's saying up until Jesus came, there were all these things the prophets were saying about Jesus coming, which frankly didn't make a lot of sense to them. They only knew it applied to the future, but they did, they did their job. They preached, they prophesied. 
They did what they were supposed to do, all the while knowing it wasn't for their own benefit. Then he says to them, be sober in spirit, be ready for action, because you know he comes again. What he's saying is our task is the same as those prophets. To labor in this day for the benefit of those yet to come so that they might be prepared for his second return. Everything we do in the immediate present is with that focus in mind. It's a matter of perspective. The point being that all of this is defined by his return. The anticipation of Christ's return defines everything. The hope of his return defines everything. The promise of his return is the lens through which we should see everything. Let me put it to you this way. Do I know that I'll be around here tomorrow? No. I have a reasonable anticipation. I have no reason to suspect that I'm going to die tonight, but it's possible. Any number of things could happen. But I do know that if I carry out the responsibilities my Savior has tasked me with, it will impact tomorrow whether I'm here or not. Whether I'm here or not is a secondary question to me. It's do I faithfully conduct the tasks, the job he's given me today, because if I do that, my influence on tomorrow is assured, even if I'm not here. And that is true of each and every one of us. E.T. Studd wrote a poem once. It's gotten a lot of hearing. It's a good one. It goes this way, or at least part of it goes this way. Most of you know it. Only one life, yes, only one, soon with its fleeting hours will be done. Then on that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Now, you can look at that two ways. You can, that look, you can look at that in a very restrictive sense. Do you mean to tell me that the only things in life that, are, that I should even be interested are those things which will advance the kingdom and lead people to Christ, that I don't have any business doing anything else? Yeah, that's pretty much true. Because anything else I do is a waste. Only that which is done for Christ will last. Waste of time. Waste of money, waste of effort. That's, that's kind of a downer. That's one way of looking at it. On the other hand, it tells me that I have, even in the superficiality of this fleeting life, with all of, all of the limitations and the failings and the struggles, even knowing what a piece of work I am, if I simply do what he lays before me to do, I impact eternity. Pretty good deal. Pretty good deal. As I've said before, that's like buying a brand new pickup with Monopoly money. Pretty good deal. Pretty good deal. Another way to put it, again, we're talking about perspective. Another way to put it, and I'm still working on this one, so I'm just going like, to put it out there and let you, let you process it yourself. Our tendency is to try to stand in the present and evaluate the future. You know, plan my future, plan my retirement, you know, do the best I can. And that's all, that's all reasonable. It's all good. That's one way. The biblical method is to find a way to look from the future 
into the present. Because we know the end of the book, right? It's not that impossible. It's not that difficult. We know the end of the book. We know what's going to happen. He will return. Hope is the confidence we have in Christ of God's good intentions worked out in us. And that allows us to see the present from the perspective of eternity. Whatever is going on in my life, I have the hope, the assured hope, that it will work to good, to my good, the good of those who love me, and the good of those, some I've never met. You know, we read that verse in Romans, and we love it, but it always leaves a scratch in our head. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We know in a lot of ways that's, that's kind of hard to figure out because I see so much in my life that doesn't appear to be to anyone's benefit. But I have a confidence in an all-powerful God that does not allow anything in my life which ultimately, from a perspective of the end, will work good in someone's life. That's the affirmation of Romans chapter 8. That doesn't mean life will go the way I want it in any way, shape, or form. If you think that's what it means, Gethsemane put the, put the, put the lie to that thought in a heartbeat. It does mean that when I stand at the end and look back, I'll be able to say, oh yeah, that's what God was doing. That's what he was up to. And it's always good. It's always good. And that is only possible because of the incarnation. Without God, in the person of his son, coming to dwell in human flesh, none of that's possible. And that is why we have hope. We have the ability to look at the future with an anticipation of joy and understand the presence in the celebration of joy. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. And Father, as we, as we look to Christmas, Father, and it's just so much really good stuff, Lord. We love it. We love just every, all the good stuff that we do, Lord. Um, it's, it's, it's our prayer this morning that you would help us be careful to pause, to meditate, to think, Lord, on the true significance of the eternal God coming to dwell in human flesh. And that's, there's a lot of that, Father. I just can't get my head around it. I can't. But I can get it around this, that it was a demonstration of just how much you love us, just how much you care for us. And because of that, I can hope. I can think about the future, Father, with confidence and with joy. Even if my circumstances right now aren't what I want them to be, and even if I don't know what tomorrow is going to look like, I can look forward to the future with joy and a celebration. In Jesus' name. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.